We have Jeff Carson who's going to be preaching this morning from Psalm 73. If you could turn to page 485 in the Black Bible in front of you. Psalm 73. Jeff is one of our elders here and he's also an MC leader. You all want to stand with me. You're going to be standing a little bit longer than the one verse Beatitudes we've been doing, so bear with me. All right, Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as, they, as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul is in, was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all your words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for Jeff. God, we thank you so much for Jeff. We thank you for his family. We thank you for his preparation this week. God, I pray that he has great joy as he brings your word. Thank you as he balances meetings and preparation. We pray that it brings you glory as he brings us your word. We thank you for him. We thank you for his leadership. God, open our hearts so we can hear just the, the ways that we need to know you more and share you more. In your son's name, amen.
today. Though I had, I had known God since I was younger, as I transitioned from high school to college and through those years at Mizzou, my eyes were opened in a new way to how great and awesome God is. And I started spending time with Him every day in His Word. And it wasn't a duty for me. It was, it was my delight to do. And I felt like I was getting to know the living Word of God in the written Word of God. And His presence and my joy in it. Like at times, it was, it was palpable. And I started to understand that God... He wasn't only the Savior that I needed, He was the Satisfier that I needed. Unless you think there was only good, and like I was some kind of Jesus rock star. Um, at the same time, I was coming to know God more intimately than I had ever known before. At the same time, I was a struggle with sin in intense ways, more than I had ever known before. Sin that had just lurked in my heart for years was eating my life. But as I grew with the Lord, I started to better understand how I could fight sin and temptation in my life. And I knew that if my heart was happy in Jesus, then I wouldn't. It's not just that I, I shouldn't. It's that I didn't have to turn to anything else for satisfy, satisfaction. God was truly the only one who could strengthen and satisfy me. And in that fight to find joy in Jesus, the Psalms, for me, were a great companion. And Psalm 3 specifically became one of those passages that I returned to over and over and over again. Whom have I in heaven but you, the psalmist says. And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, you, O oh God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I'm honored. Like I, I'm humbled to stand before you and to get to preach through Psalm 73. I count it a great privilege. I told some guys this past week that it feels like God has been preparing this parts of the sermon in me for the past 20 years. And I don't get it perfectly. I sure don't live it perfectly. But I, God, I want you to see it. I want us to journey together through this psalm and to have our hearts kindle afresh with a great desire for God and to know the joy and satisfaction that can only come from Him. So let's just jump. Let's jump in. We've been in the series through the Psalms for a little over two years, and by my count, we're about 15% through all the Psalms. <laughs> so we've got a ways to go. Tripper Longman, in his book, How to Read the Psalms, he writes this. The Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect, arouse our emotions, direct our wills, and stimulate our imaginations. When we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed. As we read a psalm, we learn about God and His care for us. We learn about ourselves as well. We understand our situation better because the whole gamut of human experience is expressed in the psalter. As David Hubbard put it, the psalms speak to all seasons of our souls. Which is probably why this series is called Psalms for All Seasons. The psalms are sometimes referred to as the heart of the Bible, both because they're, you know, they're at the physical center of uh, our physical copies of God's Word, and because they contain the whole gamut of human experience and emotion. They're psalms of praise and adoration, psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of, psalms of remembrance, psalms of confidence, wisdom psalms, psalms about the kingship of God. And our psalm this morning falls under the genre of, of wisdom psalms. 
Wisdom Psalms, like the Proverbs, they urge us to walk on the wise path of obedience to God. They contrast the lives of the wicked who ignore God in His ways and the righteous who strive to follow Him and find His blessing. And certainly, Psalm 73 echoes these themes. These themes. And as we make our way through the psalm, we're going to see that God is the only one who can truly strengthen and satisfy. That's the main point for the sermon this morning. That God is the only one who truly strengthens and satisfies. And one of the things that we'll see is this, this idea of, of perspective in life. Like, how are we viewing our lives and the lives of others around us? Or from what vantage point are we looking at ourselves and others? So, the, the sermon this morning is organized around three main points or three, three questions. And it's these. One, what happens when our perspective is off? Two, how do we regain the right perspective? And three, what does it look like when we when we regain that right perspective. So, and then I'll close with some points of application. Uh, but first, what happens when our perspective is off? Look with me again at verse 1 of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. The psalmist begins with this declaration of God's goodness. God is good to Israel, specifically to those who are pure in heart. Now, pure in heart, it, here, it doesn't mean sinlessness, right? Jesus is the only one that can lay claim to that. Pure in heart means single-mindedness. A purity of devotion to God, just like an overall orientation of one's life that's directed toward love of God and obedience to Him. These are the ones who experience the covenant goodness of God. And so he starts with this great declaration, but then there's this dramatic turn after verse 1. Listen to verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what happened from verse 1 to verse 2? Well, what we discover as we read the rest of the psalm is that like, these verses aren't in chronological order. All right? Verse 1 is the psalmist declaring what he knows to be true about God in the present as he's writing. And the rest of the chapter is the psalmist like stepping back in time. To show us how he got there. And it wasn't this like steady upward trajectory, right? Of always increasing trust in God's goodness. The psalmist, he couldn't sing, you know, every day with you, God, is sweeter than the day before. Couldn't say that. What we're going to see is that his journey to being able to make that confident declaration, it looked messy. His struggles were ugly. And this should be an encouragement to us as well, because I'm just guessing that there aren't any of us who could say, every day with you, Jesus, is sweeter than the day before. And so if you have ever doubted God's goodness, this is a song for you. And so he starts to tell a story in verse 2. He was losing his footing. He was losing his grounding. His, his belief in God it wasn't as unshakable as he thought. And then he tells us why in verse 3. Notice the phrase there in verse 3. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That phrase, it speaks to perspective. His vantage point on life. When he saw the prosperity of the wicked. When the outlook on his life was based on looking at someone else's life. He became envious. And right off the bat, we're able to start answering our first question. What happens when our perspective is off? The wrong perspective leads our hearts astray. Carson, what we learn here is 
getting caught in this comparison loop when our, when our eyes are continually drawn to the seeming ease and prosperity of others. And we compare that to the seeming difficulties and lack in our own lives. When we're caught in that loop, in that loop our hearts are led astray. And this kind of comparison, it leads us to question God's goodness. And it's dangerous. And if left unchecked, it can be deadly. And so the psalmist goes on to describe what he saw in the lives of the wicked. Look at verses 4 and 5. In verse 4 we see they live pain-free lives. Their bodies, they're fat and sleek. You know, they're healthy and strong. In verse 5, they live trouble-free lives. They don't have to deal with the same kind of afflictions that the rest of us do. So the psalmist's perspective was off. He was, he was focused on the wrong thing, but he was able to see something clearly in all this. He, he was able to see what the easy, trouble-free, prosperous lives of the wicked led to. And we see that in verses 6 through 11. Just the, the arrogance of the wicked. They thought so highly of themselves they were blinded. You know, in verse 6, they wore pride like a necklace. In verses 7 and 8, they had everything they could want and it led to scoffing and cruelty toward others. And in verses 9 and 11, it shows us how in their arrogance they even scoffed at God, right? Does God even know? Does He even see? And in verse 10, we see God's people led astray by the wicked. Some commentators believe that His people, in verse 10, refers to God's people. As in, the Israelites were, were so enamored and so, so admired the prosperity of the wicked that they just turned to go after and then he makes this summary statement in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Here they are. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Always at ease and increasing in prosperity. And if I'm honest, a lot of days that sounds pretty good to me. After seeing all this, the psalmist is so beside himself, so led astray in his heart that he blurts out these next verses. I mean, just look at verses 13 and 15 and hear the exasperation. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Some translations word verse 13 as a question. Did I purify my heart in vain, God? Was it all for naught? I mean, can you hear his exasperation? It's like he's saying, I tried to follow you, God. I've tried to fear you and to walk in your ways, to live with a pure heart. Was it, all, like, was it all for nothing? I mean, is it even worth it? I've got trouble every morning. Every day is hard. All the while, the wicked who don't even pretend to care about you, they have it easy. It's not fair, God. This isn't how it's supposed to be. I thought... If I lived for you, my life would be hashtag blessed. Does that resonate with you at all? I mean, he even goes so far as to say in verses 21 and 22, like how bitter and torn up he was inside, so caught up in it that he was like a beast, a wild animal. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Surely you can relate to the psalmist here. I, I know I can. I, I may be too refined to act like a wild animal before God, but I know that kind of ugliness still exists in my heart and it rears its ugly head sometimes. None of us are immune to envy. 
None of us are immune to the unfairness of life leading us to question the goodness of God, whether it happens in big ways or small. And sometimes for me, like it hits in really petty ways, right? Like, I'll be standing outside and I see a plane fly by and it's especially, you know, on a tough day or it's an especially tough season. I just think about like all the people on board that plane who are probably flying somewhere to go on vacation, right? All the people who are going to go spend a week on a beach with unlimited fruity drinks at their beck and call, and it's 25 degrees here, and I'm tired of the cold. Or maybe they're going to, like, go see the mountains and hit the slopes, and like, God, I've never even been skiing yet in my life. I'm stuck here in Missouri with my, in my normal life with all its challenges, just left to watch the jet tails fade off into the distance. And it can sound humorous, and when my heart's in a good place, like I recognize how petty it is, but in the moment, the envy's real. Right? And like the psalmist, I'm just stuck. I'm stuck in this comparison. So what happens when our perspective is off? When our perspective is off and we're focused on the wrong things, our hearts are led astray. So now let's move on to the second question. Two, how do we regain the right perspective? How do we regain the right perspective? Look with me at verses 16 to 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned therein. The psalmist says, I, I tried to make sense of all this, I, but I just couldn't. I, it, it was wearisome. I couldn't make sense of the unfairness of life, no matter what I tried or where I turned, until, until. And what a gracious and beautiful turn in the psalmist's perspective here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned. And then it all became clear. Then I discerned their the sanctuary was God's dwelling place among His people. And, and so much more could be said here about the sanctuary. But just know that when we see that word here in verse 17, we should understand it as the special meeting place of God with His people. We know on this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we have full access to the presence of God. But it wasn't always like that for God's people. Because of Jesus, we, we don't have to go to a particular building to experience His presence, and access is not limited to one person one time a year. God has made the fullness of His presence available to all His people through the person and work of Jesus, and now through His Spirit in us. In fact, positionally, we are as near to God right now in His eyes as we ever will be in this life. And so, like the work of for you and I, of like being near to God, drawing near to God, of being in His presence, is really just us discovering and having our eyes open to how near God has already brought us in Christ. And so, the sanctuary for us, the special meeting place of God with His people, is anytime and anywhere in this life. Okay, so back to our passage. Psalmist couldn't make sense of what he was seeing. His perspective was off. His foundation was shaken until he went to meet with God. And here we have the answer to our second question. How do we regain the right perspective? We see clearly when we're with God. Brothers and sisters, when doubts and fears assail you, where do you turn? 
To what or to whom do you look for comfort and help? I mean, surely if we're honest with ourselves, there's often a pretty long list of things that we turn to and we try before we get to God. Right, like I mentioned earlier, the psalmist is recounting here his journey from questioning God's goodness to being strengthened and satisfied by God so that he can make the declaration of God's goodness in verse 1. But what we're not told, what he, what he doesn't let us know is like how long that journey took. How long it took for him to get from doubt and despair and envy to trusting this, the strength and joy of God. It could have been a matter of minutes. It could have been a few hours, one morning, a few days, weeks. We don't know. But what we can understand is one of the signs of us maturing in the Lord is that the time it takes for us to turn to God, it gets shorter and shorter. I'm not saying that the whole journey from despair and envy to strength and joy in the Lord is, um, is always or ever going to be short or easy even after we finally turn to meet with God to help, to get the help of His presence and perspective, it's, it's still a fight. It's still a labor to work that out in our lives. And, and that's okay. Like, God is here for us in that, to be our strength and our joy in that journey. But as we go on with God, it, the list of things that we try before we turn back to Him should get shorter and shorter. He says, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. For those of you who are here this morning who don't yet know God, who aren't yet trusting in Jesus, if you find yourself in turmoil, if life just seems to be spinning out of control and you can't make sense of it, then hear the invitation today from this psalm. Turn from all the things that you've been trying on your own and turn to Jesus Enter into a right relationship with Him. He's the only one that can truly help. Okay. So we've seen that having the wrong perspective, it leads our hearts astray. And, and now the way, the way to gain clarity and the right perspective is to get with God. So, so as we press into seeking God's presence and His perspective, what will that mean for us? How will that change and shape us? Let's, let's move on to, to the third question. What does it look like when we have the right perspective? So let's pick back up in verse 17 and read through verse 20. It says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Thomas goes in to meet with God, and things become clear. He understands that the wicked will get their due. They'll come to an end. Come to an end. Again, like the psalmist doesn't give us a timeline for this, but we can be certain that at least at the end of their lives, the wicked will be judged for their rebellion and delight in other things than God. And then he, toward the end of the psalm, he provides another summary statement about the wicked in verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. As he met with God in the sanctuary, he understood the justice of God. No one will escape it. Every inequality will be made right. 
Those whose greatest treasure and delight is in this life, who prefer everything but God, will in the end experience the eternal judgment of God. It's good and right to rejoice in the justice of God, but we have to be really careful here. The ultimate solution to the psalmist's envy wasn't to see and rejoice that the wicked will get their due in the end. We believe that to be true. We believe God's justice to be true. But if that's where we stop in our quest for our hearts to be strengthened and satisfied, we're stopping short. The goal in discerning the wicked's fall to ruin, being fully judged by God in the end, it isn't for us to glory in their destruction. The goal of seeing the end of the wicked and rebellious who have it all in this life is to understand that the very things we found ourselves envious of in their lives were never the things that God intended for, to satisfy us anyways. It's foolish to look to those things. Ease. Prosperity, pain-free, trouble-free lives. It's foolish to look at those things, to strengthen and satisfy our hearts. Only God can do that. And now we're getting to, like, we're just kind of right at the threshold of the four verses of Psalm 73 that are just at the heart of it all. Remember, we looked at verses 21 to 22 earlier, and we saw the writer, he was so distraught, he was like a beast before God. And then we pick up in verse 23, and he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Even when the psalmist's heart was bitter, when he was beside himself with envy, when he was acting foolishly before God, God didn't cast him out. He was continuously with him. Why? Was it because of some great strength that the psalmist possessed in himself? No. He was continuously with God because God was holding on to him. God was holding his right hand the whole time. This is good news, Carlos. He holds our hand in this life and, and guides us with His counsel, His guiding presence in the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of this life, He receives us to glory. We get to be with Him forever. The goal and the reward in this life and the next is the same. It's His presence with us. And then He gets to verses 25 and 26 and He just overflows with praise and desire for God, undone by the way God has satisfied His heart. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's like the psalmist is saying, God, I long for heaven. I long for heaven. Not mainly because I'll get to leave behind the troubles of this world. And not mainly because of the hope of, you know, maybe being reunited with loved ones that have gone before me. But because you are there, God. And I'll be, totally, I'll be with you, totally free from the power and the presence of sin. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on this earth, God, if I have you, I have everything I truly need to be satisfied. Do you believe that, Christian? Do we live like that? Our bodies are going to fail. Our hearts will waver. 
The God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. And so we have the answer to our third question. What does it look like to have the right perspective? Our hearts are strengthened and satisfied by God himself. The psalmist says in verse 26, you see that, that God is his portion forever. Portion is not a word that we use often in just everyday conversation unless we're talking about like portion control, right? And disciplined eating. The word also shows up in Psalm 16, which is just another like incredible psalm. I mean, they're all great, but Psalm 16, it kind of hits on a lot of the same themes. This is Psalm 73. Listen to how it's used in Psalm 16, 5. The Lord is my portion and my cup. My cho- sorry, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, I want you to just imagine like sitting down to a great feast. But instead of a banquet table filled with delicious foods, the table is filled with all the greatest things the world has to offer. You see see the usual suspects, like money and wealth, power, prestige, fame, comfort, great food and drink, love, sex. And then you see this whole spread of items that really seems to be tailored specifically to you. Maybe it's that perfect body that's so elusive, athletic prowess, that promotion, a husband or wife, children, the approval of parents, a plate full of the latest Apple devices, that new car or truck or tool or piece of furniture or that beach vacation, a night on the couch with popcorn and your favorite streaming service. And you're sitting there, and you're just surveying everything that's on the table, and you are just like pumped. You're excited to dig in. And just as you begin to reach for that first first dish, one more item appears. And it just says, the Lord. The Lord. And in that moment, your heart is stirred. And you know there is nothing on this table as great and eternally satisfying as the Lord. And so, not begrudgingly, and not because you know it's the right thing to do, even though you don't really want to, but because it's truly the deepest desire of your heart, you reach to the table and you grab hold and you say, the Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion. I want Him more than anything else. That's what it means for the Lord to be our portion. God intends not only to save his people, but also to satisfy his people so that we prefer him above everything else. This is the kind of satisfaction that can break the bonds of addiction and sin in our lives, that help us to see temptation for what it is, sin for what it is, a poor substitute for real joy, That enables us to sacrifice and to risk for the spread of the gospel and the good of neighbor. As you look out on the world and and the lives of others, it's easy to feel like you're missing out. And the reality is, you probably are missing out. But not on the greatest treasure. You may be missing out on things that would make your life easier. 
You may be missing out on things that would make this life more comfortable, more carefree, less burdensome. And that's hard. Like, I'm not saying that it's not. But if you have God, you have the greatest treasure in this life and the next. Please don't hear me trying to be dismissive of pain in your life. I, I know some of us are carrying around some very deep wounds. And I'm not trying to minimize it or say that that doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters to God. Your, your hurt and your pain matters to God. But don't miss out on the invitation, especially in your hurt and in your pain, to press in deeper to knowing God as the strength and the joy of your heart in a way that you never would have without it. God is the only one who truly strengthens and satisfies, who gives strength to the weary heart, who satisfies with the portion of our souls. God desires you to be strengthened. He desires you to be strong, but not ultimately in yourself and not ultimately through your circumstances, but by Him. And He desires you to be deeply satisfied in this life, but not ultimately by His gifts, but by God Himself. And we'll only experience that deep joy if God is our chosen portion not an appetizer, and not a side item. Okay, I, I want to move on to some points of application now. First, don't pretend, pray this song. Don't pretend, pray this song. It's really not helpful to pretend like we don't face the same kinds of struggles and doubts as the writer of Psalm 73. It's not helpful to you individually. It's not helpful to others around you. Listen to what Christopher Ash says about this. We need to follow in the footsteps of the writer of Psalm 73 and of the Lord Jesus Christ and his temptations to trace this journey of honest anguish. We need to bring these thoughts and desires out, of the, out into the open, to place them as they're placed in this psalm under the banner headline of verse 1, and in the presence of God. If we pretend we do not feel what this believer felt, then we are playing with fire. For these desires lurk in all of us. Better to bring them out and look at them in the clear light of truth. The Psalms were meant to be sung and to be prayed back to God. So, don't pretend. Like, pray this song. Give your doubts and temptations out in the open to God and with a few trusted brothers and sisters. Being satisfied in Jesus, it isn't meant to be a solo pursuit. It's meant to be a community project with God and others. So one, don't pretend, pray the psalm. Two, get out of the comparison. As we saw earlier, getting stuck in the comparison loop will lead our hearts astray. When you notice envy in your heart, let it act just as like a warning light, just like a, as a warning signal to turn to God and pray that he will satisfy your heart. Let it be an opportunity to, to pray even this song. One thing that's certainly not helpful in keeping our hearts out of the comparison loop is social media. Now, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to make the case that social media is our enemy, right? We have an enemy. It's not social media. 
But in this regard, social media is not our friend. And it's certainly not neutral, right? It's programmed to keep you engaged, to keep you scrolling. And the longer you scroll, the more opportunity you have to compare yourself with everyone else that you see. And what's really crazy is that all the things that we grow envious of and other people's posts on social media are just our perception of their lives. It's not the reality of their lives. It's only the best and the brightest moments that get posted and shared. The reality is the other 23 hours and 59 minutes of their lives probably look just as hard and messed up as your life. So get out of the comparison. If you know this is a struggle for you, try taking a break. Pick an amount of time, maybe it's a week or two or a month, and unplug from social media. And at the end of, of that time, however long it is, see if you actually miss it. Do some honest self-assessment to see if it's really going to be helpful for you to add it back to your life, or at least to add it back in the same way that it was before. I, I, as I've thought about this, I think social media is similar to some other things in the Christian life that kind of fall under the umbrella of Christian freedom. Some Christians are going to be able to engage social media in a healthy way, and some aren't. And if that's not you, it's better to be unplugged than unhealthy. Three. Make God your portion at the beginning of the day. Make God your portion at the beginning of the day. I know some of you are morning people, some of you are not. Wherever you land on that spectrum, please don't hear me trying to make a law for you to follow. Like, if you really love God, you really love God, you're going to spend an hour reading the Bible and praying and journaling before anybody else in your house is awake or before you do anything else in your day but breathe. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I do believe, though, it matters how you start your day. It matters how you start your day. It makes a difference whether or not you orient yourself toward God and position yourself to be satisfied by Him more than anything else that can happen to you the rest of the day. For some of you, you may be in a season of life where you can spend an hour with the Lord at the start of every day, and if that's you, great. Like, keep going for that, right? Use that time to make God your portion. But I know for many of us, that's not the season of life that we're in. Especially, like, I'm especially sympathetic to families with young kids, right? So maybe it's while you're making your feeding that first box. Maybe it's before you get bowls and spoons and cereal out for your kids' breakfast. Some, somewhere at the beginning of your day, even a few moments where you can acknowledge God and who you are in Him and set your heart apart to Him today. Even a few moments to make God your portion at the beginning of the day, that's worth it. Even if you can't spend all the time that you wish you could. Maybe try to carve out some time later in your day to like, read and meditate on the Word and pray. But even a few moments at the beginning of the day, it's worth it. If you're always staying in bed to the last minute and then rushing around to get out the door to start your day, you're missing out. If your waking up routine is always spending those precious first minutes of the day laying in bed scrolling on your phone, 
you are missing out. You're being deceived. And some of us, like, some of us probably just need to go to bed right So we can get up right here. Some of us, right? Intimacy with God, Him being your treasure and portion, is something you have to prioritize and fight for, and it's worth it. Four, fight sin with satisfaction in God. Fight sin with satisfaction in God. A couple hundred years ago, Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon or a little paper. I don't know. You can look it up and find it on the internet. Um, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And my too short summary of, this, of his main idea is that a new or a greater affection has the power to expel a lesser affection from your heart. When it comes to fighting sin, it's not enough to play defense. To only play defense. You can have all the safeguards in place, all the defensive strategies down, but if your heart wants to sin, it's going to find a way to sin. Defense is important. It is, absolutely. We should remove ourselves from as much temptation as is possible. But it's not enough. You have to play offense as well. And like I mentioned at the beginning... When I started to learn in what I started to learn in college was that if I could set about making my heart, having my heart be happy in Jesus, I knew I wouldn't need to turn to anything else to satisfy me. That's what it means to go on the offensive against sin in your life. That you work to find such great joy and love in Jesus that it drives out all lesser loves. We eat good food in our house, okay? Um, it's funny, like years ago, some of our kids were at a friend's house, and uh, the wife was making cookies, and she was just taking the pre-made dough out of the container and putting it on the cookie sheet, and one of our kids just looked at her, just kind of perplexed, and like, my mom makes cookies with ingredients. <laughs> kind of curious. Uh, I, I love all kinds of cookies, so it's, you know, not from shade. But a lot of you know Angela had a cake-making business for a number of years. She just made these incredible cakes that looked great and tasted great. She doesn't do that anymore, except she still makes cakes for our birthdays. And uh, last month she made this chocolate Reese's cake for Micah's birthday. And it's, you know, like 10 inches tall and layers of homemade chocolate cake with, you know, homemade chocolate ganache and little crumbles of Reese's peanut butter cups just layered to the top, covered with chocolate buttercream and, you know, crumbles of more ganache and more crumbles of Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, and I'll just say this, like, I don't have the same taste anymore for grocery store cheap <laughs> right? My appetite for store-bought cake has lessened over time. Listen, friends, temptation is never going to go away completely in this life. But your taste for, your appetite for, the sinful things that you once couldn't resist, that can listen over time. Cars, let's fight sin and temptation by feasting on the greatest treasure. That's how we, that's how we, that's how we do it. We feast on the greatest treasure. 
Last, five. Let joy in Jesus propel you in mission. Uh, let's look here. This is the last verse in Psalm 73. This is verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. There's some connection here to nearness to God and joy in His presence, our hearts being so full with joy and satisfaction in Him that we just can't help ourselves. We just can't help but open our mouths and tell of His works. And so as you think about like who it is in your life that needs to know Jesus and you feel stuck and you feel paralyzed, maybe you don't need like another way to share the gospel, you don't need another, you know, um, tool or strategy other than like, let your heart be happy in Jesus and let that overflow just in your everyday life and in your everyday conversations. He's worth it, guys. Only God can truly satisfy and truly strengthen our hearts and satisfy our hearts. Would you pray with me? God, we need you. We need your help to, to see our lives clearly. God, we need your help to believe these truths, to, to believe that you really are better than anything else we can find in the world. So help us, God. Help us to believe that. Holy Spirit, even in these moments, bring conviction. God, bring to mind all the things that we are pursuing instead of pursuing you first, instead of looking to you for true joy and satisfaction. God, forgive us for turning to other things for joy. Lead us, God. Lead us into repentance. Awaken us with a fresh hunger and desire for you. God, do that work in us. We pray in Jesus' name.